Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. Hebrews chapter 13. And while you're turning there, let me extend my thanks as well for you coming to, to be here. It's good to be back together after missing last year's conference because of uh, all the COVID stuff that was happening. So we're grateful to, to be able to be back together again. You know, we started this conference uh, almost 30 years ago and uh, really in the initial uh, words that went out about it, it was, in, in, it was to encourage uh, the hearts of God's servants, equip their hands for ministry, engage minds in the, in the Word of God and, and sound thinking about ministry. And at the time, it was started as the Mid-America Conference on Preaching because that was the particular focal point, uh, was the best way, because the goal really was to help God's servants because in helping them, then you're helping the local church, which is the center of God's work in this era. And so it was to, to help those who are serving the church. And, and the commitment was the best way to do that was to sort of raise the, the bar on expositional preaching to help, help the word be the center of ministry. And so that was, that was really the focal point. So all of it was really zeroed in there. Then the longer you do the conference, the more you start to add things to it. And so finally, we uh, belatedly changed the name to E3 for those words, encourage, equip, and engage, uh, because the goal is still the same, and that is to help God's servants as they seek to, to minister to the church of Jesus Christ and to, to be a blessing to them. And so that's our, our, our desire. Uh, this year's theme focuses on the personal ministry of the Word, and, and I'm excited to see how God will use it to help us all help people better and, and be uh, equipped for that work. And I hope our time together will be an encouraging and uh, that, that also will engage with uh, issues and truths that we need to think about more carefully uh, by people who have spent a little more time ahead of us thinking about it. Right, we're we're trying to work at it that way. I think most of us would probably uh, think it's an understatement to say the last eighteen months or so have been a challenge, uh, personally uh, and ministerially, with all the stuff that's been happening. And and in some ways, uh, uh, the theme for this conference probably fits uh, very well, given what we've had, because there are lots of challenges. Uh, that we might be experiencing, that we need ministry and help in ministry, as well as the people that we serve are, are still navigating through uh, all the stuff that's going on. I don't know if you've heard the phrase, the great resignation. Uh, it's sort of in the buzz, uh, really was coined by a, a, a adjunct professor at the University of Texas, uh, because beginning last April, and actually running still through this time, uh, there have just been the high high point peak numbers of people just resigning their jobs. Some some people are calling it the big quit. Uh, we actually hit the peak in August of 4.3 million people just basically saying, I'm done with their job and walking away from it. And uh, like anything like that, there's lots of reasons that people propose, and some of their reasons seem to cancel each other out, so I am not in any way. Uh, giving you what I think is the definitive answer on it. I'm just going to share a couple things that I saw. Uh, the guy, Anthony Klotz, who came up with the term, uh, talked about four main causes 
uh, one was actually a backlog of workers who wanted to resign before the pandemic, but held on for a bit longer because of it. So in essence, we're having a massive happening now because we would have had it sprinkled out prior to and during, but people weren't sure what to do. So all of a sudden it's, it's happening that way. Uh, that there's actually uh, a, a, what they would call burnout, particularly among those who are frontline workers. Uh, he calls a category pandemic epiphanies in which people experienced major shifts in identity or purpose that led them to pursue new careers or start their own businesses, right? In the, in the downtime, they just had the epiphany that they don't wanna do what they're doing. They're gonna go do something different, right? And then, uh, and then uh, the aversion to returning to offices after a year of working remotely, right? They've, got, they've gotten comfortable, they don't wanna go back. Now, I don't know about you, when I read those, I thought, man, there's some parallels to church life, but also it seems like we're going through a great resignation among pastors too. There's a lot of people coming to the conclusion that I really was wondering about giving it up on this, in the, you know, stepping out earlier, now's the time. Or there are uh, church members not returning to pre-pandemic life and causing the pressures that that puts on churches in that regard. Another Harvest Business Review article said, in generally, that we found that resignation rates were higher among employees who worked in fields that experienced increased, uh, extreme increases in demand due to the pandemic, All right? So added pressure to their responsibilities have resulted in people hitting sort of the, the end of the rope kind of a thing, right? So, so I raise it simply to recognize what we see happening in our churches, we might feel happening in ourselves or also see happening among those that, that we, are, we would consider our, our colleagues or peers in ministry. Uh, because doing the Lord's work in a sin-cursed world uh, was never gonna be easy. Right, but there are times when it intensifies and makes it a, a deeper and, and more difficult struggle and can produce a kind of weariness. And thankfully, God has the answers for us in his word. And so what I uh, would like to do this morning is look at uh, really just a, a portion of a passage of a larger section, I'll tie it in, but I think then uh, help what I've found helpful for myself, hopefully helpful for you personally, but also then helpful for us in terms of thinking congregational life. How can we help shape the culture of our churches to be what this text would talk about and, and then live, live it out together uh, by God's grace? So look, if you would, please, Hebrews chapter 12, and I'd like to read... Uh, beginning in verse 12 down to verse 17. Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. 
See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, we're actually going to be looking at verses 12 and 13, but I'd like to just uh, remind us, I'm assuming it would just be a reminder of the historical context. Uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of believers, uh, Jewish professing believers who are being tempted to pull back from their profession of faith. That's why there are these exhortations about holding fast to that confession, not letting go of it. Uh, we often shorten the theme of Hebrews to sort of the catchword, Jesus is better, or the superiority of Christ. But I think if we're actually going to have a full idea, we need to have something larger than that. And that is that we should never turn away from Christ because of his superiority. That's why the book has five warning passages in it that, that are laying out the importance of a persevering attachment to Jesus Christ because he's far better. So it, it's not just about Christ. It's about Christ and why we cannot look anywhere else. right? And, and he is the only hope and answer for us. In this particular passage, if you notice the first word of verse 12, it says, therefore, right? So the, the context of this is following the, the explanation of God's discipline in the early part of chapter 12, that, that God disciplines his children whom he loves, and he does it for good reasons. And then comes this inferential, therefore, so here's what should be the response because of it. So in some ways, I think what we could see is all of 12 to 17 describing for us the proper response to God's discipline as how should we respond to the discipline of God with regard to his children. And 12 and 13 form the first part of that, and that is that we are to help those who are struggling. Verse 14 is we're supposed to pursue harmony and holiness. And then 15 through 17, we're to watch out for wrong responses to God's discipline. All right, and, and so... So as shepherds, we could be looking at that, and the congregation is certainly supposed to be looking at it. But we're going to zero in on that first one, because uh, I'll probably have a hard time getting it all covered in this session, let alone trying to go for all of it, right? Verse 12 and 13, we're to help those who are struggling, right? And what I'd like to do this morning is look at two foundational truths from the text, then work out to implications and applications. So here's Truth number one, and it's, it's like the duck category. You know this truth, right? But following Jesus Christ in a fallen world can wear you down, right? He describes people in this passage as weak and feeble. And he's talking about people among the assembly, right? So this isn't outsiders because they're weak and feeble. This is people who've professed faith in Christ and are facing real challenges in their world because of sin, and they are feeling it. 
I think the character of the weariness that he's talking about is captured in those words and probably goes back to verse 3. Look back there at what, what the writer says. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. All right? So, so it's a possibility that as they face the conflicts they're involved in, they might start to get weary and lose heart. And apparently, based on verse 12, there actually were some people who were past the place of warning them, watch out for this, they actually were probably there. They were described as weak and feeble. They're, they're, they're headed possibly to a place of, of falling. And so the writer wants them to understand it. Uh, many, I think probably most, see the language of verse 12 as, as having a, at least an echo of Isaiah 50, 35 verse 3, which says, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. All right, so the, the, the idea seems to be uh, the, the, the weakening of inner resolve to keep pressing forward. All right, their resolve to keep on following Christ, to keep on being faithful, was, was beginning to dissolve. And so they're, they're starting to feel the effects of that. So what were the causes of their weariness? Well, in the, in the book of Hebrews, you can see it. I mean, if you talk about the immediate, like the, if I could put it this way, sort of the triggering things that, that you'd, you'd immediately look at, we know that they were facing persecution and conflict. I just read 12.3, right? Contradictions of sinners. You've, you've, uh, you've got this kind of battle going on where chapter 10 describes them as having their property taken from them, of some of them being thrown into prison, right? Of, of I think you go into chapter 13 and see that they've been alienated from their, their social network because of their faith in Christ, right? They're, they're actually having to go outside the camp, which is not a bad thing, but the reality of it is you feel that when your whole fabric of your social world, family, and connections is all rejecting you because of, of your commitment to Christ. They were facing uh, conflict and suffering, but also possibly we could see difficult spiritual growth. The beginning of the chapter, he says, the sin which entangles you, Right? He's going to say just after this verse that they're to pursue sanctification. So I don't think the weariness can all be located by triggers that are outside of them. Right, Persecution, uh, affliction, suffering. I think that, that there are some uh, subject, I mean, windows in the passage around it that, that actually it was their own struggles too. Because a persistent struggle with a sinful issue can wear you out, right? And you don't have to nod your head if you don't want anybody to know that about your life, right? But, but the fact is that, that we, we, as much as we can, I mean, we may have really good theology of sanctification, about progressive sanctification, and the fact that all of our life is going to be a battle and a fight, 
there still is something deeply woven both into our humanity and our culture that wants quick, fast fixes. Right? We, we want to go lay it all on the altar and then be able to walk away from it. And it's not going to ever bother us again. And sometimes the same fight in our own soul, repeatedly being uh, surfaced, can start to wear you out. Can, can start to make you weary in that regard. So I think those would be sort of the immediate uh, triggering kinds of things. But I think a part of the window into the ultimate perspective of it was in verse 3, right? Where he said that you not grow weary and lose heart. And I would take that lose heart as being a window into the issue of hope. Right? You know, Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. The reason those things can press and beat on us from outside and they can wear us down from inside is because we can start to lose hope. We, we start to lose heart. We start to think things are not going to be different and we want them to be different. Right? And that can, that can start to wear us out. Right? It might be that we lose hope. Uh, that we can lift another weight or stand for another day, right? Our, our, we might hear someone say, or we might hear inside of our own heart, I don't think I can make it, or I don't think I can take it anymore, right? And that could come after that last email from somebody who's not happy about a decision you made about handling COVID. And you go, I just can't put up with this anymore, right? Or, or it could be the, you know, the millionth time you and your spouse have had the same disagreement about something, and you think, when is this ever going to stop? Right? Why can't this go away? I can't take it. Right? You could start to lose hope. When you've prayed and you've worked and done everything you can to get people to engage, and they're still remaining aloof, you could start to say, you know, I, I don't think I can put up with this, take this anymore. Or it's never going to change, right? And you get heart sick. Sometimes it's hope is lost because of things that have been lost that we can never replace or restore, right? Something that we cherished, and it could be a good, positive thing, but it's gone, and we just don't think anything can replace it. It's, it's, it's just not going to be filled, that gap. We might say to ourselves, or we might hear someone say, this is not how I saw my life working out. You know, I mean, that's I'm, my opinion, okay, because I, I don't have the research cred to say it, but I think that's probably the big window into what some people call midlife crisis. 
they get to a certain point and they had envisioned a different outcome. And they're looking around and going, you know, I didn't see it working out like this. And, and all of a sudden, their dreams are, are coming down. And they start to lose hope as to what, what really is going to be significant for them. Right? And they get weary and they stop running the race like they should. Sometimes it's hope that present problems will finally give way to promised blessings. Will this ever end? When will it be made right? Is it really worth it? Now, here's, here's my point is not to like, preach the Debbie Downer sermon this morning, all right? I'm, I'm going to take us down before we come up, all right? That's all I'm trying to do. Uh, denying life, that life in a sin-cursed world is hard, actually sets us up for despair. Right? Because we're, we're denying what is clearly true biblically. This world is broken. We are broken. Right? We're not, we're not functioning at optimum perfection. We're sinners. And everything around us is tainted by that. And if our expectations are somewhere above that line, then we're going to constantly be pressing down toward the lose heart. Because we have an unrealistic expectation of life in a sin-cursed world and of ministry in a sin-cursed world. And, And pastorally, we will be ineffective, I believe. I mean, the gap, what I would argue, is that the gap between a naive and deceptive idealism on one hand, that someday we can be spiritually above sin and that we can have the perfect church, right? If we've got a sort of a naive, self-deceived idealism on one hand, the answer to that is not to go over to sort of like a, a pessimism, like, woe is me, this world stinks, and, and life and ministry is horrible. I'm not arguing for that. I'm arguing for a biblical realism that says it is not always going to be easy. Sometimes it's going to be intensely difficult, and sometimes those who minister may need ministry. Right? Sometimes it might be our hands that are weak and knees that are feeble. But certainly around us at any given moment, there's going to be people like that, right? And, and, and we need to know, right? Proverbs says, a smiling face can hide a troubled heart. That the reality of it is there, there's probably more that we need to be attentive to in that regard. So here's the second truth uh, that I would like to draw from this text before we start thinking implications and applications. Following Jesus Christ in a fallen world is a congregational project. Right? Following Jesus Christ in a fallen world is a congregational project. And I say that because of the direction that these commands go in verses 12 and 13. 
right? Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the, that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is written to the congregation, right? It's, this, isn't, this isn't written just to the pastors. I mean, we know that because in chapter 13, one of our favorite verses, right, is submit to those who have charge over you, right? So you know it's to the congregation, it's, it's written to the, the, the gathering of God's people. So this is something that isn't a top-down thing, right? This really isn't written, so you pastors, strengthen the hands that are weak and, and help the feeble knees. Should they? Yes. But it's actually something being taught about life in the body of believers that we have this kind of heart for one another and provide this kind of help for each other. It's the believers who are called on to help them. And that's because uh, the way I would put it is perseverance is a community or congregational project, right? We're all supposed to help one another make it safely to glory. That's why Hebrews 3.13 says, encourage one another day after day. And chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 say, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together, but encouraging one another, right? The, the language in chapter 3, verse 13, suggests to us that sin deceives and hardens. So we need people to help us see it clearly and feel it properly, right? Lest any of you be deceived, right? Or have your heart hardened, you need people to exhort and encourage you day by day. So you're not deceived means you're actually seeing it clearly and not having your heart hardened means you're actually perceiving things correctly, Right, Your heart is not hardened, it's soft toward the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so here's the, the reality of it is, if, if, if sin can deceive me, that means I'm not seeing things correctly. That's why I need somebody else to help me see it. If my heart is hardened, it means I'm not feeling something I ought to be feeling, and I need somebody to help me recognize that. Right? That's, that's what I mean by it's something that God designed for us as a gift of His grace that we are not alone on this pilgrimage. We have other people to help us see what we might be missing and help us, and I'm not using like as an emotion, but feel what we ought to feel. Right? I mean... Um, God's made the body to form calluses so that we don't have, uh, we, we start to lose feeling in places to get rubbed, right? And that's a good thing, except for your conscience, right? You're not supposed to get calluses on your conscience, but it's possible you could start to get them. So you're not feeling something you ought to be feeling and you're headed toward trouble. And you need somebody to help you and, and to speak truth to you in that regard. 
And, and I want to just say, I mean, because, and I want, I'm going to try and walk carefully through what I'm going to say because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. But I think it's important in our day to recognize that the author of Hebrews is not simply promoting an active social life. Right? He's not basically saying when he says, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, have a few good friends and, and enjoy life together. I mean, that's a good thing. Don't hear me say anything against it. But, but a lot of sometimes what happens in church life is it, it, it actually, that becomes the definition of fellowship. Like have a few good friends and, and enjoy life together. And, and not a lot of the actual work that the writer of Hebrews is talking about happening in one another's lives. And, and so we need to realize that his paradigms, if I could put it that way, are a marathon race, chapter 12, verse 1. Let us run the race. And a fight or battle, right? You have not resisted unto blood. So, so alongside of the uh, social circle of fellowship that just sort of refreshes us through fun or whatever. We also need to have the picture of a guy slogging it out at the 15th mile of a marathon and someone saying, hey, don't quit. You can do this. Right? Don't, don't give up. Keep pressing on. Or the conversation in the foxhole in the middle of the fight when someone wants to bail out on it or just, just uh, quit in the middle of the battle, and the band of brothers encouraging that person to remain steadfast and keep going, right? Picking up the wounded and helping carry them forward. That's the image he's talking about in chapter 12. That's a part of the thing that we need to recognize if we're going to talk about mutual ministry Right? If we're running the race, we're bound to get tired. I mean, you can look at me. I'm not a runner. All right. I mean, this body was made to crash through things, not run for long periods of time. All right. So I'm, I'm using an illustration a little bit from outside of my experience at this point. But I have run in the past to get ready to crash through things. And, and, and it, there does come a point where, you know, you're just, you hit a wall and you're like, I cannot do this. And then you do it and all of a sudden you get the second wind. Right? I mean, that's, and we've, we've all had that experience physically, but we've had that experience spiritually too. You seminary students have had it academically. Right? There, there, there are these walls that we come up against that we have to crash through. That's what endurance is. And sometimes the thing that helps us to crash through the quitting point is precisely the ministry of God's people speaking truth, caring for us, helping us push through. And we need to realize that. That's what God gave us the church to do. One commentator on this passage says this, the, gospel, the appeal is ultimately for the community to endure in the struggle with a genuine concern for the weakest of their number. Right? There are people running fine. But remember, there's, there's also people who aren't running so well. 
right? And, and we need to help them. We need to strengthen them. We need to, to help lift them up. And so look at the nature of this in terms of the language. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths. So the first is strengthen the weak and feeble. And the, the word translated strengthen there means either to build up something that has fallen or to straighten something that has been bent. That's why some of you may have translations like that. Uh, and, and honestly, it's difficult to, to make a choice between, but we, we get the point, though. Right? Either it's a weak person who, who we're trying to help infuse with strength to stand back up, or someone who's begun to deviate from the pathway and we're trying to help set them back on the course. So when we see people whose energy and spirit are failing, we're to help hold them up. And, and I think a part of the answer to the question of which it is, is probably the illusion here in Isaiah I referenced, right? The verses around that Isaiah 35, 3 passage say this, say to those with an anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Right, so, so you've got weak hands and feeble knees that need to be strengthened, and here's how you do it. You speak to those who need strength in their heart. They need, they need courage, and you call them to see God. Weak hands and feeble knees are strengthened by reminders of God's promises and encouragements to trust in Him and those promises. Right, just like and I don't want to cheapen the analogy, but just like the guy who's practiced in the marathon running that ungodly distance, all right, and is now all of a sudden at the 13th mile going, I don't think I can do it, when they've run the full distance multiple times. And all they need is someone to say, hey, you can. And they change their disposition, Right? That, that We see that happen all the time, but in this case, we don't look at the person who's weak and say, you can. We say, God can, and God will. He will do what he's promised to you to do. Trusting him means taking the next step. Right? You, don't have to, you don't have to guarantee the next 13 miles of steps. You just need to take the next step, trusting him. And, and he will give you the strength that you need. He will accomplish his purposes. Then it says in verse 13, make straight paths for your feet. And here, possibly, I think many see it as an allusion to Proverbs 4.26, particularly in the Septuagint rendition of it. And the point is that the path will be made proper for walking so that those who are struggling, that is people with limbs out of joint, may not have more damage done. Right? So if you're going to take a, a person who's got a, you know, a, a, a blown up knee or ankle and you need to get them from point A to point B, you're not going to choose the pathway that goes through the most rugged terrain possible. Right? You're going to try and pick the straightest path to try and help them get to the goal so that they don't damage themselves more as they're walking the path. And in this case, it's saying to the congregation, help smooth out the path, help 
help straighten it so that the person can keep going forward without being harmed more. Right? And, and so we come alongside and assist them in that regard. We help accept responsibility for getting them to the destination as much as we can, rather than having them go in the wrong direction or, or uh, end up being damaged by the way they're going. Okay, so, so two basic truths. Living and serving Jesus in a fallen world can wear you out, and it is to be addressed then as a congregational and community project. So some implications, all right? I would suggest that we, for ourselves, but also need to cultivate in our congregations, right, this truth. We must humbly acknowledge the battle in ourselves and carefully watch for it in those around us. If you think, and I I cut it out of my notes just for time, but there's a great Spurgeon quote on this in which he he talks about the fact that, you know, though we can sometimes think we're made of iron, occasionally the rust will upset us. Right? That, that, that even the strongest people at, will be exposed to their weakness at some point. Right? And, and the, and, and what I would suggest is that you and I have to have a mindset that does not see ourselves as impervious to the problems of a fallen world. Right? And, and we know it, right? We preach it. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Right? But how many of our brothers in the ministry have fallen because they didn't take heed? And we like to think, well, they didn't take heed of this, this sin over here, and that's the problem. And I think in some sense it's true, but, but here's my observation, right? And I think I probably have um, you know, a larger scope of interactions on this because we have a seminary. And so there's lots of guys who've gone through and gone out. I mean, at one point I sat down and it was so depressing. I haven't done it in a while, but, but it, it averaged about once every other year. Someone falling that I had either been in school with or had taught. Right. And I think it's actually probably higher than that right now. So I know a lot of them, and, and, and then when I have to interact with them, uh, you know what I tend to find is it didn't go, it didn't go from like faithful ministry to sinful mess. You know where a lot of it came from is they started to become weakened by the troubles they're experiencing. Right? And, and instead of responding to it the right way, they kept sort of uh, rationalizing their permission of something not acceptable until they're ensnared in it. Right? Just the, the light flirtation that sort of fills them with some fresh energy or the momentary glance at something that provides a, a little salacious interest for them, or the little sip 
to sort of calm the nerves and ease the pain or just a little bit out of the out of the account to cover some bill pressure right it didn't start with an enormous failure it started with a weakening process that they actually thought they were above right they weren't taking heed lest they fall because they didn't they no that's not going to happen to me They weren't seeing it in themselves. They weren't paying attention to it. And so we need to have our eyes open about ourselves, and I think we have to, because the Scriptures say, take heed to yourself and to your teaching, right? So that chapter in Spurgeon's lecture to his students has a great title, The Minister's Self-Watch. Right? What are you doing to keep watch over your own soul, but also have you, are you watching over the souls of other people and are people watching over yours? Right? And, and what kind of signs I think that we should be aware of? Clearly, and I'm trying to draw out of the text, right? Discouragement, which could mean we've become controlled by fear or overwhelmed by a sense of failure, or have a growing sense of hopelessness, right? Those things could all be discouraging us. We're afraid of what's going to happen in our life, or our family, or our church, or we feel like we just just have failed to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish, and, and we're starting to have that weight on us, or and lose hope. Right? Sometimes it's distraction in your own life. You, you are avoiding the things that need to be done. And, and, and those aren't all straight. Right? Could be distractions morally, spiritually, practically. I mean, you've probably heard me say before because I come back to it decently in regularity, right? I think our world has substituted inner man renewal for outer man, right? Where outer man is perishing. And so we try to solve that by outer man renewal when Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says his outer man is perishing, but his inner man is being renewed day by day. Our culture loves to substitute some outer man pleasure to compensate for our outer man pressures or problems. And all of a sudden we can find ourselves off track. Right? I, I, a distraction isn't a bad thing if it disengages us briefly for refreshment. Right? Sometimes we just do need to unplug. <laughs> right? But if it becomes something that actually causes us to deviate from the path we know what is right or disengage in, in an inordinate way, then, then that's, that's probably the evidence of a problem, right? I mean, we, we should recognize that and, and try to seek help to work through it if we're... And I say that, seek help, because... Probably by the time we're there, we've not been able to solve it ourselves. Right? And, and, and that's why I'm saying we need to humbly recognize this. 
Like if you've had a problem for a long time and you've not beat the problem, then that means you need some help to beat it. What I mean by that is like someone to encourage and help and strengthen weak hands and feeble knees. Right? Because the path of taking it on by yourself up to this point has not brought the resolution that God wants for you and you need to stop thinking too highly of yourself and, and, and humble yourself in that regard. Right? And sometimes it's just we start to drift spiritually. Right? And I know it could be, uh, you know, cliche-ish, but I mean, it's possible for us not to be being refreshed by the Word of God and prayer and worship. And we need that, right? So we should be attentive to our own souls, but also around us. When we see members of the church who are carrying weights of discouragement or seem to be getting distracted from the paths that, that they had been walking or starting to drift spiritually, uh, we should realize that that let me say it this way. I mean, it may be overt rebellion, but I don't know that we should always jump to that. It actually might be that there are hands that are weak and knees that are feeble. Right? And we sometimes go into all attack mode when, when what they need is someone to help strengthen those hands and feeble knees and to help make the path straight, move alongside to minister to them uh, and, and not view them as just a pain in your neck or, or someone to get right, right? They need encouragement. So we must, I think as well, within our church and within our own lives, cultivate a network of spiritually refreshing relationships. This text presupposes... I believe that you can know when someone's hands are getting weak or their knees are getting feeble because you're close enough to them that you can observe that. And that if it's your hands that are getting weak and your knees that are getting feeble or your limb that may be out of joint, that, that people are close enough to you to know that. Right? Because we all should be living where we can see and be seen, where we can know and be known, right? So that we can help others and be helped. And, and that means proximity that has to be true about our lives. And it's all different. We're all different, right? I mean, one of the things that bugs me is that we tend to come up with cookie-cutter solutions, and all of us are different, right? And, and what would encourage me may be discouraging to you, and what might encourage you might be discouraging to me. And so it's not as simple as like, here's our four-step formula for doing it. It actually requires knowing the people and having some interaction with them and, and, and having some idea that you can see maybe where they're discouraged or are starting to get distracted or drifting, right? And I, again, don't hear me saying these are always wrong but I think our whole approach sometimes to accountability was so formulaic, it doesn't help. Right? I mean, I think probing questions are good. But I was telling my class in seminary the other day, I mean, I've never met an adulterer who wouldn't lie about his adultery. 
right? Or a person ensnared in pornography, their whole pattern is that they're, they're covering it up. Right? So somebody's embellishing from the church and you go, are you taking any money? Oh, you got me. Right? I mean, the whole point is that it's got to be something more than a checklist kind of a thing. Like we, we make each other feel good that we sit down and ask these five hard questions. But, but the reality of it is liars lie and sinners cover up. So there better be a whole lot more going on than, you know, a little five minute question time. It's supposed to be connecting and seeing and watching, observing so that we can actually help one another and be helped in that regard. I think in the context, the answer would be then we need to point one another to Jesus. That's what chapter 12, 2 and 3 do, right? I mean, we're supposed to look to fix our eyes on Jesus, look at Jesus and consider him. So you know what the best thing you can do for somebody is point them to Jesus Christ, right? And, and again, I think there's lots of practical things you can do for them, but unless they start to see and love Jesus, those practical things will not have the energy to be carried out. Right? You're just handing them a to-do list is not going to transform the heart because the sin problem is coming from the heart. The transformation has to take place in the heart. Right? Something has to work inside of them to have them have a bigger yes to Christ than to anything else. So we've got to bring them to Christ and help them. And so, sure, if the body needs rest because it's physical weariness, then get rest. I'm not denying that at all. I mean, I just read in Mark where Jesus told his disciples after they had a busy time of ministry, get some rest. Right? So I, I am not opposed to that. And sometimes that is the problem, right? But it often can be our lack of rest is masking something else too. So we need to make certain that we have the interior strength happening, right? His work is the anchor of our hope, right? His example motivates our hope. His promise sustains our hope. So if we're starting to lose heart and it's a hope issue, where does real hope come from? I mean, do I, do I, I mean, if you come to me and you tell me how bad things are going in your ministry, and I say to you, oh, it'll get better, you're going to walk away going, whatever. Right? Where am I going to get you real hope? It's only if I take you to eternal hope truths wrapped up in Jesus Christ, right? Your hope is not built on a successful ministry, right? Your hope is not built on having no resistance, right? Because Jesus faced all kinds of resistance. He faced betrayal, and he did it for the joy that was set before him. And what Jesus accomplished there guarantees that it can never be taken away from you, right? So if you're going to have hope that really sustains you, it's going to be anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? And, and I think we have to recognize that, right? Again, fun can be a good thing. 
but it can be only a distraction at times and not dealing with what we really need. I'm going to date myself, and some of you are old codgers too, but in the late 70s, there was a group called the Atlanta Rhythm Band, that had rhythm section that had a song, and it, you know, once they hit your head, they, they stick there forever, right? So some of you, I apologize that maybe for the rest of the day, this is going to be a flashback for you, right? But they have a line that comes a lot of time, like you face a problem, and the basic thrust of the song was about how bad it is, and it says, I'm not going to let it bother me tonight. Tomorrow, I might go as far as suicide but I'm not going to let it bother me tonight, right? What they were saying is like, hey, I mean, what are we going to do about this whole world? But you know what? I'm going to have a party tonight. Not going to let it bother me. Tomorrow, I might be ready to commit suicide, but not going to let it bother me tonight. And sometimes we unwittingly adopt the same strategy, right? We, things are going bad and we go, hey, I'm not going to let it bother me tonight. And we take off after something that will distract us, maybe supply some, some fun or happiness. But we know tomorrow we might go as far as suicide. Right? The issue of distraction doesn't deal with the problem. The only thing that's really going to change is if we actually deal with the problem. Right? And so we've got to be willing to move toward Christ about this to solve it. And we must constantly remind one another of God's love. Because in the middle of a difficult circumstance, the writer of Hebrews is showing us that it's quite possible for you to think that your troubles are evidence of God's displeasure when chapter 12, verse 5 says it's actually the evidence of God's love. Every son whom he loves he disciplines, right? It's not that God is uh, angry with you or that you're somehow a failure before God. It's actually that God loves you and wants you to be a partaker of his holiness. He wants you to have the peaceful fruit of righteousness. He's disciplining you not just according to his pleasure like an earthly father did, but actually for your benefit, the passage is saying. So the very things that might be wearing you down and you might think are coming at you because God is not happy with you is actually the evidence of his love towards you. Right? He, he loves you and has purposed good towards you as his child. He's wanting to make you like Christ. And so... We need to be reminded of that. We need to remind others, right? That God is just not dishing out spankings for the fun of it. That he loves his children and is trying to move them toward Christ's likeness through the things which we are suffering, through the difficulties, right? So that email that is going to knock the wind out of your sails did not happen outside of God's permission. Right? That, that seeming failure of something that you poured all kinds of time and energy into, hoping that it would accomplish good, and it seems not to have done it, is still inside of God's control. 
right? And, and you can be confident that if you're in Christ, his purposes for you are good. That he is taking you perhaps through the school of hard knocks, but he's taking you toward Christ-likeness. So you can have hope in the midst of it and you can have the strength from coming to know that no trial is purposeless and thankfully none of them are permanent. Right? God always has a reason and it is only for a season. There is coming a day when he is going to show you the glory of his plan and purposes. So here's my hope for this right, is some, some internal wrestling with us, right? Because if you're like me, uh, the last 18 months, I think in, in ways that I had never experienced have sort of pressed me uh, with, I mean, I think decision fatigue is a real thing, right? And there comes a point where you're like, I don't want to make another stinking decision. Right? I just, I just would like to be able to, to just like coast here for a minute. Right? Or uh, I might be uniquely susceptible to this. Right? Bad arguments drive me crazy. And we live in a world where you can hardly look at anything and not see stupid things being said. Right? And, and so I find myself getting sucked into these mental arguments with all these people. I have no idea who they are. And it just could, it just frustrates me, right? I mean, honestly, I, I have found myself more frustrated uh, in the last 18 months than in my entire life. Like, I'm, I'm having to preach to my, I joke around in our church because, like, I, there's, there's, Two or three things. My wife thinks I'm a very patient person, except for in two or three kinds of circumstances. One of which is the drive-through. Right? I'm like, hey, have you never seen one of these things before? I mean, do you think McDonald's just totally changed their menu and you don't know what you're supposed to order? Right? It's like, come on. You know, I'm joking now, but I mean, I literally, I've sat there and I've got, I, I, can, I, I can feel myself just getting angry. And I'm thinking, this isn't about McDonald's, right? It, it really isn't about the drive through at that point. There's something else going on in my heart that has put me starting to get at a hair trigger, right? And it's a warning sign for my soul. Right, So I think a lot of us have to be honest about what the last year and a half may have done for us to maybe put us at the precipice of a great resignation or possibly a great fall or a, a great foolishness in how we're leading God's people. Right, So we need to recognize that. But also I think it has to help us see that, that God's plan was not for a person or even just a few people to be the source of the spiritual health of the church. It's supposed to be the body functioning the way a passage like this has. Or you could take the whole book of Hebrews, right? 
They're supposed to see. Let us consider one another. They're supposed to sympathize with chapter 10 and, and chapter 12. They're supposed to share the burdens of them in chapter 12, 3 and 16. And they're supposed to speak truth to one another. I mean, this book of Hebrews is, is really like a master class on how the body of believers should care for one another. And if we want to shepherd well, then we need to have a heart to help the sheep understand where they fit in that so that we're solving the problem. Uh, I started to use a word I always try and avoid, holistically, right? Uh, in, a, in a broad way, we're trying to spread out the work of Christ among his people because by the time you and I find out about some problems, it's way too late. Right? By the time you hear about the marriage that's about to blow up, it, it already might be too late. But there were friends who were very close that if they had been seeing, right, they had been listening, they could have moved to strengthen something that was weak. They could have lifted up something that was feeble. They could have straightened out a path. Right? But, but because we've centralized this kind of care for one another to a few people, it's not reaching out to the extremities like it should. So, so as we go in this conference and we learn things about how we can help people, help people better and help our churches help people better, let me just challenge you to be thinking, how can you pass this into the body? How can you help make it part of the DNA? Because it's hard to do, right? I, I mean, I've been here 32 and a half years, and I still feel like we come up so far short of what I think we ought to be in this regard, right? So, so there's so much work for us to do to not just be what we should be, but to help cultivate the congregation to be the kind of source of strength it needs to be for all of them, especially as we go into deeper and darker days. We need it even more because the kind of persecution they experienced might be knocking on our door. And we need to be ready for it by being strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Let's pray together, please. Father, thank You for this text and Thank you for your care for us in uh, providing for us uh, scriptures that uh, speak directly to the realities of our life and the resources that are ours in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, please make this conference the kind of thing that would strengthen weak hands and feeble knees and to make paths straight, not just for those of us here in attendance, but that we might be a conduit of this to our congregations and strengthen them by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.